So it's not really a talk about science. It is, as has been said, a talk about the philosophy of science or about epistemology, one of those long philosophical words that means something simple, how we know stuff. Um, but you can see from the word epistemology that the Greek word pistis that Keith was mentioning is in the word epistemology, how we are convinced of things. Um, and I don't want to give anyone the idea that I'm going to portray, you know, all uh, atheists have the mindset that science is the only way to know anything, although Keith has quoted from some others who, in his talk, display that kind of mindset. But there certainly are people of that mindset, and this idea that science is the only way to know things or have uh, reliable, rational beliefs, uh, I think is a big stumbling block to... Uh, the many other avenues of knowing other important things in life, including but not at all limited to things about God. Uh, so it certainly needs sort of tackling head-on, as it were. Um, Neo-atheist Victor J. Stenger, a scientist, complains, critics accuse new atheism of scientism, which is the principle that science is the only means that can be used to learn about the world and humanity. They, that is the critics, cannot quote a single new atheist who said that. Uh, so he's sensitive to this accusation of scientism, the view that science is the only way to know about things. So you wouldn't expect a new atheist, for example, to say things like, science does not require, nor does it use, any metaphysics. No philosophy to back up science. Science works on its own. And science is belief in the presence of supportive evidence, whereas on the other hand, you have faith, which is belief in the absence of supportive evidence. So you don't want faith, that's irrational. You want science, belief in the presence of supportive evidence, and science doesn't need any metaphysics or any philosophy, says Victor J. Stenger. In uh, Stephen Hawking and Leonard Mlodnov's book, The Grand Design, they now notoriously uh, say philosophy is dead. Philosophy is not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly physics. Scientists have become the bearers of the torch of discovery in our quest for knowledge. Well, as John Lennox puts it, Hawking's statement about philosophy is itself a philosophical statement. It's manifestly not a statement of science. It's a metaphysical statement about science. Therefore, his statement that philosophy is dead contradicts itself. It's a classic example of logical incoherence. <coughs> Neo-atheist Peter Atkins, in his recent book On Being, says the scientific method is the only means of discovering the nature of reality, the only way of acquiring reliable knowledge. Um, it seems that he has not at all learnt from his 1998 encounter with William Lane Craig um, on this particular matter, which I've got a brief clip to show you. He, he recently had a debate with Craig in Manchester, and uh, basically they had a rerun of this kind of conversation because uh, Atkins really hasn't taken on board that in saying that kind of thing, he is sawing off the branch that he's sitting on. It's alone. It's also adequate, but taken together, the fact that one that science is omnipotent, and the fact that 
I can understand why people like you desperately want to believe in God. That is an argument against it. So that's but two fallacious arguments put together don't, don't make a sound argument, right? They are, but, but, but do you deny that science cannot account for everything? Yes, I do deny that science So what can't it account for? Well, I hadn't brought that up in the debate. I have a number of examples that I was going to give. Uh, I think there are a good number of things that cannot be scientifically proven, but that we're all rational to accept. Let me list, let me list five. Logical and mathematical truths cannot be proven by science. Science presupposes logic and math, so that to try to prove them by science would be arguing in a circle. Uh, metaphysical truths, like there are other minds other than my own, or that the external world is real, or that the past was not created five minutes ago with an appearance of age are rational beliefs that cannot be scientifically proven. Ethical beliefs about statements of value are not accessible by the scientific method. You can't show by science whether the Nazi scientists in the camps did anything evil as opposed to the scientists in Western democracies. Aesthetic judgments, number four, cannot be accessed by the scientific method because the beautiful likelihood cannot be scientifically proven. And finally, most remarkably, would be science itself. Science cannot be justified by the scientific method. Science is permeated with uh, unprovable assumptions. For example, in the special theory of relativity, the whole theory hinges on the assumption that the speed of light is constant in a one-way direction between any two points A and B. But that strictly cannot be proven. We simply have to assume that in order to hold the theory. <laughs> this is well, the yeah. <laughs> so, okay. yeah, none of these beliefs can be scientifically proven, and yet they are accepted by all of us. The other week in Manchester, um, Peter Atkins was saying that philosophers are a waste of space and you don't need philosophy to do science. Science will tell us everything. And uh, Bill Craig was asking him about um, Stephen Hawking's philosophy of science, which is an instrumentalist philosophy of science that says scientific theories don't give us truth about the way the universe is. It just gives us useful ways of accomplishing things that we want doing. And Peter Atkins said, well, you know, Hawking's philosophy of science is rubbish. And Bill Craig said, well, I, I agree with you about that, but to say that is to do philosophy of science, is to have a philosophical opinion about the nature of scientific theories. Um, so Atkins um, hasn't learned from those kind of encounters. Keith had Richard Dawkins, I have as well. Basically, beliefs fall into one of two categories. On the one hand, there's proper evidence-based belief, as he uh, rather naively asserts in his recent book, The Magic of Reality, uh, aimed at uh, school kids. He says, the only good reason to believe that something exists is if there is real evidence that it does. We come to know what is real in one of three ways. We can detect it directly using our five senses or indirectly using our senses aided by special instruments such as telescopes and microscopes or even more directly by creating models of what might be real and then testing those models to see whether they successfully predict things that we can see or hear and such, with or without the aid of instruments. Ultimately, it always comes back to our senses, going with John Locke here, uh, one way or another. On the other hand, for Dawkins, there's the improper methodology of blind faith, believing in something when there literally isn't a scrap of evidence for it, he says, if there were a scrap of evidence, then it wouldn't be faith. 
let me refer you back to the uh, recording of my talk in week one about the new atheist's blind faith in blind faith as a concept. But this is a serious misunderstanding both as, as faith, and I refer you to that talk, but also it's a misunderstanding of reason. We have exactly the same quote uh, from the end of that letter to his daughter, uh, Julia. He says, next time somebody tells you something's true, why not say to them, what kind of evidence is for, there for that? And if they can't give you a good answer, I hope you'll think very carefully before you believe a word they say. But of course, take this claim and apply it to itself. Ask Richard Dawkins, what kind of evidence is there for the truth of the claim that you can only sensibly believe things because there's evidence for it? (coughs) This philosophical claim that rational belief requires direct or indirect empirical evidence sounds important, But it cannot be justified by direct or indirect empirical evidence. It's self-contradictory. Sam Harris complains that while believing strongly without evidence is considered a mark of madness or stupidity in any other area of our lives, faith in God still holds immense prestige in our society. That misunderstanding of faith. But it's also a misunderstanding of reason because the demand for everything to be justified by evidence entails an infinite regress that, that literally cannot be fulfilled, this demand. You cannot meet this demand. You'd have to have, uh, well, I'm not going to believe this until I've got evidence for it. Great, here's some evidence for it. But of course, I'm not going to trust the evidence or that the evidence really entails this conclusion until I have evidence that it does and that it's real. And so on, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so on ad infinitum, you would basically end up saying, ah, we can't know anything. As G.K. Chesterton put it, let us clearly realise this fact, that we do believe in a number of things which are part of our existence, but which cannot be demonstrated. All sane men, I say, believe firmly and unalterably in a certain number of things which are unproved and unprovable. Every sane man believes that the world around him and the people in it are real and not his own delusion or dream. So, to take one of the examples that Bill Craig mentioned in that clip, doubting that the universe is more than five minutes old would be considered a mark of madness or stupidity by most people if you really met someone who thought that the universe was only five minutes old. But the belief that the universe is older than five minutes old must be accepted without evidence by its very nature. Any evidence that you pointed to, like, oh, well, let's chop open a tree and see, look, there are lots of tree rings. Yeah, but all of those tree rings came into existence five minutes ago. You know, but it could have done. Any evidence that you point to would be part of the scenario and couldn't be used, therefore, by hypothesis against the scenario being true. And yet, clearly it's rational to believe that the universe didn't just pop into existence five minutes ago, complete with half-digested foods in our stomachs and memories of events that never happened and, and so on. But none of that evidence that you could point to, therefore, can disprove the idea Otherwise, here's a lovely quote by someone who actually does seem to get this point. Intuition, they say, and I'll reveal who said this in a moment. Um, Intuition, 
denotes the most basic constituents of our faculty of understanding. While it's true in matters of ethics, it's no less true in science. When we can break our knowledge of a thing down no further, the irreducible leap that remains is intuitively taken. Thus, the traditional opposition between reason and intuition is a false one. Reason is itself intuitive to the core. As any judgment that a proposition is reasonable or logical relies on intuition to find its feet. The point I trust is obvious. We cannot step out of the darkness without taking a first step. And reason, without knowing how, understands this axiom if it would understand anything at all. The reliance on intuition, therefore, should be no more discomforting for the ethicist who just say in constructing an ethical theory um, might appeal to your intuition that torturing small children for fun is wrong and use that as a sort of basis for building an ethical system. should be no more discomforting for the ethicist than it has been for the physicist, says Sam Harris in The End of Faith. Um, so it depends which mood you catch these writers in sometimes, as to whether they're really signing up to scientism when they want to give faith, as they define it, a good old bashing, or whether they actually reveal that they do have a deeper understanding of the complexities of the relationship between uh, our personal certainty and this or that, how evidence relates to what we believe rationally about the world, that actually it can't be limited simply to saying it's only rational to believe things because of evidence or things justified by the scientific method. Interestingly, in The Moral Landscape, a book claiming to show that science can subsume ethical discussion, Harris explicitly contradicts his main thesis um, that science can tell us about ethics. And he contradicts the scientific theory of knowledge to which he appeals when criticising religious faith. He says this, on page uh, 37 of the hardback of The Moral Landscape. Science cannot tell us why, scientifically, we should value well-being. That's an explicit contradiction of the main thesis of his book. It is essential to see that the demand for what he calls radical justification, levelled by the moral sceptic, someone who says there are no moral truths or whatever, could not be met by science. Science is defined with reference to the goal of understanding the processes at work in the universe. Can we justify this goal, doing science, scientifically? Of course not, says Sam Harris. What evidence could prove that we should value evidence? So when Bill Craig says to Peter Atkins, science itself can't justify science scientifically seems here that Sam Harris uh, agrees. And I'm done. Okay.
Yeah, I was sort of confused about the difference between truth and reality. Okay. Because, um, for example, if you say the Earth is round, well, I think we accept that as being true and real. And yet, when we use a map, we might use different projections like from Arcadia, we get different mm. types of impressions, which to some extent that sort of represents the true state of affairs. Yeah. So we, I, I don't know how you feel, but I feel truth is the fact that it corresponds to the true state of affairs, what mm. really is, whether that means anything, I don't know, but it, yeah. the way things really are is what truth is. And when you said the guy who believes he was Napoleon, mm. um, say it's real because it's not true that he's not Napoleon but the fact that he has a sort of thought that he is Napoleon that would be a reality in some sense it's real to him but it may be real to us in the sense that yes that chap has got thinks he's Napoleon so it's real for him and real for us but it's not true I was wondering if you could expand mm. on if, if there is, do you see a difference yeah. between truth and reality? Truth and reality. Certainly, I think when we talk about truth, it's a bit ambigu- ambiguous in a sense because, I mean, Aristotle, the way back, back to there, would distinguish between the truth, i.e., the facts of the matter, and a proposition or a statement that we make about the facts of reality being true. Um, having the property of being true if it accurately describes the facts of the matter. So these, that's why these two things can come apart. Um, on, a, on a realist view of the world, there are the facts of the matter and there are beliefs about the facts of the matter and the two can fail to coincide uh, or they can coincide and of course then we get into the issue of c- coincide to sort of within what tolerance of of precision, say, when we're talking about a map um, or talking about, you know, if I draw a circle, I could, you know, I could personally never draw a perfect circle, but I could nevertheless represent to you the concept of a perfect, uh, you'd know what I meant, um, and so on. And it's a bit like that with, with maps. Uh, to within a certain degree of tolerance, they allow us to get from A to B accurately. You know, I do need to go north of here if I want to go to Birmingham. That's, that is true. But nonetheless, the map is, you know, it has its limitations. Um, and often when we're, we're talking about those kind of empirical claims, particularly in, in science and the way that scientific models get subsumed within broader models, you know, Newtonian physics, within Einsteinian physics, etc. Um, so, you know, literally speaking, we would have to say, OK, Newtonian physics is not true. But it's, it's true enough within certain circumstances that you can rely on it very reliably to send rockets to the moon or whatever. Um, but yes, I think it's only within a view that says there is this difference between the facts and our opinions about the facts that then opens up the possibility of, of thinking, well, I could be wrong. We have to have that humility about how we hold the truth and, and think carefully about how we most wisely arrive at our opinions about what is true. Uh, if you're a non-realist, if you're some sort of postmodern relativist non-realist, then that's not even an issue because these two concepts don't come apart. The world is just formed by our concepts or our word games. Or, um, As Richard Rorty said, truth is what your colleagues will let you get away with saying. <laughs> famous postmodern philosopher. To which my response would be, I'm not going to let you get away with saying that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
No, the facts of the matter, the truth, what is real, reality, as, uh, all of those I think are just synonyms. I just think if somebody says God is real in the sense that to them it's a reality, but somebody else it could be a, perhaps a way of dealing with the world. How do I understand the world? Yeah. I'm using this idea... But they would say it's real in the sense that it's, because I'm now going on to objective truth, that yeah. God is real even though we don't exist. It doesn't depend upon us to create the reality right. of God. But if you make a distinguish between objective and subjective truths, for example, it is subjectively true that I, I prefer the taste of Pepsi to Coke. And when I say that, I'm not making an objective truth claim about whether Pepsi or Coke is actually better than the other. Um, when I make the, the claim, um, God defined such and such a way is real, does exist, or the proposition that there's a God is true, has the property of being true. Um, I'm making a, a truth claim about what is objectively the case rather than subjectively the case. Certainly, it's obvious that God is a subjectively tr- real reality to certain people. Um, but some of those people want to make the further claim that not only is God a, a reality to me, but that he is objectively there, i.e. it is true that God exists, irrespective of whether anybody happens to believe in him, or irrespective of whether or not God is real to anyone. You know, um, just as much as you know, there is a dark side of the moon, <laughs> even though it's... Never been a reality to anyone, kind of, yeah. Sorry, there's a question. Sorry. What is a neo atheist and what is a metaphysicist? Oh, excellent questions, definitional questions. Okay. Uh, neo atheist, synonym for new atheist, neo meaning new, as in sort of neoclassical or. Whatever, yeah, neo-Nazi, or yeah. Uh, not that we're drawing any associations there. To, no, no, just the use of the word. No. no. Um, <laughs> so it just means the new atheists. Uh, the new atheists. Um, it's uh, a term coined by uh, Gary Wolf in uh, Wired magazine a number of years ago in an article that he wrote about. Uh, the new wave of atheist publishing from people like Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, Victor Stenger, um, Peter Atkins, um, and what seems to me to sort of be the definition of the class um, is that um, they're not merely atheists who think that belief in God is an intellectually mistaken position. They're atheists who think that belief in God is intrinsically evil, primarily because it means uh, not fulfilling your intellectual duties, because faith means believing things without evidence or in the teeth of evidence. In their, that's, their, that's how they define faith, and that understanding of faith is their way of explaining why people who are religious are easily suckered into doing horrible, evil things to other people, because someone's told them that if you fly this plane into this building, you'll get 13 virgins when you go to heaven or whatever. And they don't ask, what's your evidence for that? Why should I think that that's true? They just go, oh, well, that's, you know, that's, what I, that's faith, and so I'll do it. Um, 
So it, it was particularly spurned by the, the 9-11 attacks. Sam Harris was the first author, but several of them have, have said that that's what has could have spurred them from, from treating religion with, with sort of at arm's length, kind of, oh, well, no, that's a private hobby for some people. As long as you keep it private, that's fine. You know, different strokes for different folks. You're wrong, but you're harmless through to all faith, you know, even the most sort of liberal Church of England, more tea vicar kind of religion, even though that's not going around suiciding bombing people, it's, it's legitimising the suicide bombers because it's supporting the idea of faith, which is this process of non-thinking. And works Mother Teresa, for example. Yeah. So, um, so what about metaphysics? Okay, metaphysics uh, comes from Aristotle's writings. It was the book char- characterised... Um, um, beyond his book on physics means just meta beyond above um, and it's the philosophical study of um, a wide range of issues that lie beyond the reach of scientific and study of the empirical world so questions like are there supernatural realities are numbers real what is the nature of time is there a god um, are ethics objective or subjective those would be metaphysical questions about what's real, yeah. Because um, I'm a software engineer, and for me, metadata is data that describes data. Right. is language that describes language. Yeah, yes, okay, so it, it's, it's philosophical inquiry into the, um, it, into the things that you would bring to science as assumptions. Right. So if you bring to science the assumption that the material world is all that there is... Well, that's your metaphysic. Yeah. If so you bring... Like yeah, and, yeah. It's a basis that you start from. That's right. Um, but within, within the discipline of metaphysics, you're, you're, you're allowed to then ask questions, say, some people take this as an axiom and other people's don't, and can we actually have a rational argument about which of these axioms is okay. more plausible than the other? Yeah. Thank you. Um, do you feel that Christian faith, mm. you have to start from the same, uh, you still have to bring the same assumptions to the table um, as, as you mentioned, sort of, uh, you talk about assumptions, mm. you talk about, so if, if we're going to sit down to discussion, we sort of, mm. sort of implicitly agree on the assumption that, we, that we're going to have a logical argument and we're going to be reasonable with each other, do you still yeah. feel as a Christian that those are assumptions that are external to Christianity, or do you feel that they are somehow justified by Christianity? Um, that's an excellent question. I certainly make certain, if we're going to have a conversation, certain necessary assumptions in order for us to have the discussion will be there. Um, I don't see them as external to Christianity in as much as I would say, for example, things like the assumptions that um, the basic laws of logic are true or that language can communicate or that we ought to be fair in the assessments of one another's arguments or whatever are intrinsically part of um, the theistic worldview and part of the character of God. The basic reality is that God exists necessarily rather than nothing, law of non-contradiction, and that he is rational, creates us in his image, etc. In the beginning was the word, the logos. So I would view those assumptions as intrinsic to a Christian worldview, but I'm not saying by that that therefore people who don't share the Christian worldview can't share those assumptions. Because as far as I can understand from what you were saying in that lecture, they must 
where your own arguments be external to Christianity. Because if you sort of start off, I'm not familiar with the philosophers, but like you start off with this stateless mind that doesn't know anything. Yeah. And you're sort of, sort of slightly, I don't know what Descartes said about it, I'm not familiar with these things. You start mm-hmm. off with like this stateless mind, at the very least, both the atheist or the, or mm. the theist, and they don't even know they're atheists or theists at this point. So yeah, I haven't even thought the concepts when you're three. Yeah, yeah. that's right. So you have to bring these assumptions to get even to the table of deciding what is real or true. Yeah. And therefore, to then some, so once you get to the point of saying, well, I'm a Christian now, I'm going to go back and somehow justify these, you must see that that is a problem that doesn't quite... Yeah, well, that's why I'm saying I'm not saying that those who don't have an explicitly Christian worldview can't share those assumptions. And obviously, we come in, none of us come into the world pre-programmed with a <laughs> Christian worldview, but neither do I think we come into the world as a blank slate. I wouldn't, wouldn't be with, with Locke on this. Um, I think we do come into the world and we notice, and we, we do have certain assumptions, and there's very interesting child psychology tests on what some of those assumptions are are as well, but certainly even rationally, there's, there's certain things that you can't get away from in entering into rational dis- debate about what is true about anything. And I don't think it's particularly different to enter into rational debate about are the essential Christian truth claims true or false. Um, certainly, uh, I don't think it's... Uh, since we have to share those assumptions to then build from, you know, I can argue to Christianity from those certain shared assumptions. It's not making it circuit to then recognise that the Christian worldview is a worldview that is consistent with the reality of those assumptions and that gives you some, some sort of insight into why those assumptions are reasonable and are, are there and are truths, as it were. Um, but, but certainly I'm not... I'm, I'm not doing the whole circular thing of assuming that Christianity is true and then setting out and saying, if I make those assumptions, then I end up proving Christianity is true. I, I, would, I would, of course, in, in discussion, when I'm thinking about it, start with the essential, in, ineluctable assumptions that you have to make to be rational about anything and go from there. Yeah. So changing the game slightly, or not changing the game, but sort of moving on slightly, then how would any Christian know that... Uh, any experience they have have had of God mm. isn't some kind of uh, grand delusion, so to speak, yeah. without bringing those. Sure. Well, let me let me give you a, a little potted, a little bit of uh, historical history here. Um, Keith gave us Descartes and Locke, who represent what's called the rationalist and the empiricist traditions in philosophy about how we know things. We know things through pure reason, or we know things through experience. Um, but an experience that um, starts off completely blank and then we get experience and we sort of build up from there. Uh, and generally the, the sort of movement within philosophy since then in terms of how we know things has moved to a position of saying, um, sure, there are some things that with Descartes we can say we can know absolutely certainly. It's, it's impossible to deny your own thinking. Uh, it's, it's self-contradictory to deny the basic laws of logic, etc. But that's far too restrictive. He tried to, to just start from these undoubtable assumptions and then build up to an entire worldview from there. And that's just sort of too narrow and restrictive. And actually, there's something to the sort of Lockean empiricist tradition, at least in as far as saying, if, it, if you have experiences and it seems to you that things are the case, it seems to me that I'm in a room full of other people in chairs and so on, and that the chair's red, etc., then that's 
a good reason for believing that that's true until such time as someone gives me a sufficient reason to doubt it. Now, of course, I, I, my, my senses have deceived me in the past, but how do I know that my senses have deceived me? Only by trusting my senses when they showed me that actually I'd been deceived in that occasion. You know, it looks like the straw in the water is bent. But how do I know that that's, a, that's deceptive? Only by trusting the fact that when I pull it out of the water, it still looks straight. Or that when I feel it, when it's in the water, it still feels straight. And so on. Um, so you have to trust your experience, even to recognise experiences that aren't trustworthy. So this idea that trust in your experience is actually fundamental. And although I could be in the matrix now, and you're all, you know... I suppose that's possible that none of you are real. But actually, the, kind of, the burden of proof, as it were, is on the person who wants to hold that sceptical, conspiratorial viewpoint. It, they've got to be the one who gives me sufficient reason to believe that I am in the matrix, rather than it being my job to give sufficient reason or evidence to show that the world is really real, like it appears. Because otherwise, you get into that infinite regress problem of trying to prove everything. So um, the idea that you, um, you take your experience as being vertical, being real, being truth-telling, unless you've got sufficient reason to think otherwise, kind of breaks this tie between the, the narrowly rationalist and the narrowly empiricist traditions from the 17th century. Yeah. Well, I hate to say it, we really want to stop them. We've run out of time. Peter, stay around. Yeah, sure. Do come, come back. I had a Peter speaking gradually. Do we want to speak fluently at all at this hour of the day? <laughs> <laughs> I think we've got another two or four songs. So thank you very much. Thank you.